Um, each month at the first Sunday of the month, we take communion together. It's just a way to stop and remember the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. It's so easy in our busy world to get busy with work and life and bills and stress and chaos. And it's good to just stop and remember who he is and what he was about and what he did for us. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul told the churches um, to remember the night he was betrayed and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new promise made with my blood. Do this as often as you drink it to remember me. And Paul says, As often as we break the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he returns. So this morning, anytime during my message or Darby's last song, if you want to get up and come and take the juice, and the bread and just to say thank you jesus because of his death we can live his life because he lives again we need not fear death let's pray and we'll get into our message jesus thank you for your sacrifice instead of writing off the world and saying they're too messed up you entered into the world and became like us died in our place so that we might be called sons and daughters of god and we're so grateful that when you look at our worst moments, our worst mistakes, you don't write us off. You enter into the pain and into the mess, and you bring healing and resurrection. And God, we celebrate you today because you are not dead, and you are returning to build your kingdom to just set all wrongs right. We look forward to that day, and as we take bread and juice, we remember that because of your death, life is coming. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ would. Amen. Um, this year, Darby and I became parents. Like, if you didn't realize it, it was just out here, right? Uh, and we love it. It's great. But one of the things we quickly realized is when we go out to eat now, it costs a lot more money. I don't know why. Like a kid's meal isn't that much more, but somehow everything costs more money. Doing even the smallest thing costs more. And we're starting to think about taking a fall vacation. And it's like everything, like vacations somehow are going to cost hundreds of dollars more and I'm like it's such a small person like why is this going to cost so much more everything seems exponentially more once you add a person even if it's a small person now think about what it would cost for 13 men to travel across the country to take time away from their businesses and their families to eat and have places to stay for three years it would cr take an incredible sum of money probably millions of dollars if not tens of millions of dollars but that's exactly what Jesus and his disciples did so who paid for that? Have you ever thought about that? Who paid for that? How did Jesus afford to do that? The Gospel of Luke has a curious detail in its account of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus' ministry was funded by women. This is in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This is what it says. After this, Jesus traveled from one city and village to another. He spread the good news about God's kingdom. The 12 apostles were with him. Also, some women were with them. And they had been cured from evil spirits and various illnesses. These women were Mary, also called Mary of Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been cast out. Joanna, whose husband Chusa was Herod's administrator. Susanna, Susanna and many other women. They provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. So there you have it. How did Jesus afford to do what he did? 
women funded him. The ministry of Jesus was financially supported by women. Now, the last few weeks, we've been talking about the role of women um, presented by the Bible. We've been talking about how many times people come to the Bible and they think, man, the Bible seems to have an anti-woman bias. And we've been talking about what it actually says. I think this is such an interesting note that Jesus's ministry was paid for by women. And the word here used for support, they provide finances, but they also supported Jesus and his disciples, is diagnosis which is where we get our word for deacon in the New Testament. You've probably heard that word if you've been around church at all. Um, the first disciples might have been men, but the first time the word deacon is used is right here, and it's in reference to women. Before we go any farther, though, and talk about this a little bit more, I want to focus in on one name in particular. This list mentions Mary Magdalene. Um, her name is mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. That's more than most of the male apostles. Her name seems to indicate that she was from the fishing village of Magdala. It was a town in Galilee. Mary from Magdala, or as they would say in the first century, Mary Magdalene. Just like they would call Jesus the Nazarene because he was from Nazareth, it was a way of referencing where she was from. Now, since she was funding Jesus's ministry, it mentions, um, Mary was likely a prominent woman who likely came from a wealthy family, and she was using her wealth to support Jesus because he had cast these demons out of her. Mary Magdalene occupies a similar position among the female disciples as Simon Peter does among the male apostles. Anytime you find a list of male disciples of Jesus, Peter's listed first. Anytime you find a list of female disciples of Jesus, Mary's listed first. Um, in 2016, Pope Francis officially updated the Catholic Church to refer to Mary Magdalene as an apostle of the apostles. N.T. Wright, a Protestant theologian and widely considered the foremost New Testament scholar of our day, has called her the apostle to the apostles. Since an apostle had to be someone who traveled with Jesus, saw his life and teachings, witnessed his death and resurrection, Mary fits that bill. Mary did all those things. He calls, N.T. Wright calls her an apostle to the apostles because in every story about Jesus' resurrection, Mary's listed as being one of the first ones, part of a group of women, who were the first to realize that Jesus was risen from the dead, and she goes back and tells the male disciples, the other apostles, who don't believe them that they've seen this risen Jesus. One of the key indictments I hear against female leadership is the fact that there are no female apostles. In fact, I just texted a few blurbs from my messages from the last few weeks out to a few men that I know who are good Christian men in churches, and many of them responded with just a simple statement, there are no female apostles, as if that just settles it. But if by apostles we mean the 12 disciples who were Jesus' inner circle, then that's true. We have their names. They're all men names. But that's not the definition that gets applied to Paul. Remember, there's 12 apostles, and then all of a sudden Paul comes along later, and he's considered an apostle too. And all the 12 disciples agreed that he was an apostle on equal standing with them and able to disagree and debate with them about the nature of the cross and the future of the church. The criteria for Paul to be considered an apostle also easily fits Mary. In fact, she has an even greater claim to the title since she was one of the first to see him resurrected, and it's not really clear if Paul was aware of Jesus' uh, life during his ministry. And speaking of female apostles, scholars have long been intrigued by a curious note that Paul makes in Romans 16.7. Romans 16.7 says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, 
They were in Christ long before I was. Now, why this note is interesting is because Junia is a Greek woman's name. And what he's saying is, they're my fellow Jews. They're in prison with me. And they are outstanding among the apostles. Um, it seems to imply that Junia is an apostle. Modern theologians who reject the idea of women leadership have attempted a number of explanations to kind of get around this text. Some argue that Junia is highly respected by the apostles, but isn't an apostle herself. Um, others suggest that Junia, which has always been a female Greek name, was somehow a name given to a man um, because they just can't handle the idea that there could be a female apostle. It seems a lot easier to acknowledge that using the criteria that applied to Paul, that an apostle was someone who traveled with Jesus and saw his life and teachings and witnessed his death and resurrection, uh, it seems that if we're going to use that criteria that the New Testament uses, that it's reasonable to assume that there were some apostles who don't get a lot of attention in the biblical narrative, but who existed and shared the good news of Jesus' kingdom, and some of those seem to be women. Now, some scholars think that Junia is Joanna from the passage in Luke we just read. Remember, it said that one of the funders was Joanna, whose husband Chusa was Herod's administrator. And some scholars see Joanna and Junia being the same person. Um, in the first century, especially, a lot of people had a Jewish name that they were given by birth and then a Greek name that they used in professional settings. For instance, we have Simon, who's also called Peter. Peter is a Greek name. Simon's a Jewish name. Then you have people like Saul, a Jewish name, and Paul, a Greek name. And so they would have two names. And so some scholars believe that Joanna, who was one of the funders of Jesus's ministry, was also called Junia, and she is one of these female apostles. Possibly. If Mary was a female apostle, used uh, or under the same criteria used for Paul, it's interesting that she and perhaps Joanna were the only apostles to actually pay for the ministry of Jesus herself. The other apostles owed their livelihood to her generosity. And for the first few hundred years of the church, Mary of Magdalene was highly respected. She was seen as a woman to emulate. However, with the rise of male leadership and the subjection of women in the Dark Ages, church leaders took efforts to diminish the role and the reputation of Mary. In 600 AD, Pope Gregory called Mary of Magdalene a prostitute. The church was attempting to downplay female influences in scripture, and this is the first time in history that Mary Magdalene was considered a prostitute. He said that Mary of Bethany, remember Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were brother and sister, and um, they come up in the story of the Gospels. He said Mary of Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, and an unrelated character in the Gospels in, who was a prostitute in Luke 7, he said they're all the same person. And Pope Gregory said Mary Magdalene is a prostitute. And it kind of downplayed her influence in the church after that. Still to them for that, these, if you, the Pope said this and people started thinking that. There's no scriptural evidence for that. These, if you read these three accounts, they have no connection to each other. I'm a huge fan of the show The Chosen. I know Michelle and I have talked about it many times. Great TV show about Jesus and his disciples. But in the show, they make Mary Magdalene a reformed prostitute, keeping with the Dark Age church tradition, despite there being no biblical evidence that she was. But perhaps the most demeaning way the Dark Ages church de-emphasized Mary was by attributing a number of Gnostic works of heresy that were being written in the Dark Ages to her. 
Um, there were these pseudo-spiritual books with weird paganism that were being written in the Dark Ages, and people were saying, these are from Mary Magdalene. And so if you said, Mary Magdalene is a hero of mine, I want to be a strong uh, leader and follower of Jesus just like she was, they'd be like, well, you know, she wrote these weird things over here, so you don't want to be, you don't want to be like her, you don't want to be um, similar to her. Um, some of those writings that were written in the Dark Ages and attributed to Mary Magdalene became the basis for Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Despite all these attempts to downplay, downplay, discredit, or demean Mary of Magdalene, the scripture remains clear. She clearly traveled with Jesus. She clearly was one of the first, if not the first, to see him resurrected. And she clearly funded his ministry. Now, I think this is important for multiple reasons. And another reason I think it's important is because Jesus and his disciples relied on the financial acumen and assistance of women. Without these wealthy and well-connected women, Jesus would not have been able to do what he did. What does it say? He was going from village to village, sharing the good news of the kingdom, and that just wouldn't have happened if these women hadn't stepped in to fill this important gap. And I also think this is important because the ones holding the financial power in Jesus's ministry were women. And here's why I think that's important. In the modern workplace, sexual harassment happens way more frequently than we like to think. 81% of women experience sexual harassment in their careers, according to a study by NPR. In most cases, there's a clear power dynamic going on. Men will, with power, harass women without power. Employers and judges and juries often use women's failure to report harassment as evidence that it's not a big problem or that plaintiffs had other motives. But only a third of people who have been harassed at work ever reported to a supervisor or a union representative. Um, they estimate that somewhere between only 2 to 13% of people who are sexually harassed ever file a formal complaint. This is done by a, uh, according to a study by the University of Michigan and the University of British Columbia School of Business. They say this is the main reason they don't, because they fear retaliation, and according to research, that's with good reason. Many victims, who are most often women, fear that they will face disbelief in action, blame, or professional retaliation. This could be hostility from supervisors, a bad reference to future employers, or the loss of job opportunities. Their fears are grounded in reality, the research concludes. In one study of public sector employees, two-thirds of workers who had complained about mistreatment described some form of retaliation that followed. Now, the New York Times did an article about sexual harassment in the workplace, and they made a stunning revela revelation. And this is why I think Jesus was so brilliant in how he set up his ministry. The highest positions in most companies, according to the New York Times, positions like CEO and board president are most often held by men who view other men as allies and friends who, and who see themselves in their shoes, and they tend to believe and support men at the expense of female victims. They also saw this as a problem with sexual harassment in the military, where most of the time the highest ranking officers were men, and there were few, if any, high ranking women. And so what would happen is these reports would come up to the CEO or come up to the board. They would come up to the, um, the highest ranking of members of the military. And as a result, they wouldn't believe them. Now, I would like to say that this is just a problem out there and not a problem inside the American church, but we know better. Uh, when I read this New York Times article, I thought this is exactly what happens in churches too. 
If the head of most churches is a male pastor or a male priest or a male minister, are we really surprised when allegations of abuse go unpunished and unaddressed? If there's no woman in authority that another woman can feel safe going to and sharing a painful and awkward experience with, how can we be surprised when years of verbal harassment go unaddressed and eventually escalate into a scandal? And this is why I think Jesus was so brilliant. Even if the most controversial verses from Paul about women are to be taken at face value and women aren't to hold the highest leadership positions of pastor or elder, and we'll talk about these verses next week and we'll wrestle through them and we'll try to get to a good conclusion on them. But even if those are true, look at what Jesus did. He was so clever. He put the money, the purse strings for his organization in the hands of women. If there was any indiscretion on the part of a male disciple— they could go to one of these women who was funding the ministry and be heard by someone who was like them and likely had experienced things like they did. Jesus allowed women to be in a position of authority and power, holding the funds for the ministry in their hands. And as a result, there were people who had power to be sure that a victim's concerns could be heard. When Christian churches and organizations cover up the abuses of male leadership to protect the ministry, we forget that people are the ministry. And as soon as we stop treating each individual person as valuable, as people made in the image of God, our ministry is no longer about God or people. It is about power and control. And unfortunately, we can look across America and we can see church after church, denomination and network after denomination and network who protect their power and their control instead of valuing people. Uh, in May of 2022, a pastor who I knew, I shook his hand, I would read his books, he actually provided some finances when we first got this church off the ground. In 2022, uh, this pastor who led a megachurch of tens of thousands of people was revealed to have an inappropriate relationship with a woman back in 2012. Uh, at the time, he had told his church board of all men about it after it happened, and they hoped to cover up the situation quietly so the church could continue its important ministry instead of reaching tens, uh, important ministry of reaching tens of thousands of people, and this would have been an embarrassing hiccup. When the woman was contacted as part of a probe about sexual abuse in evangelical churches in 2022, she said she had been convinced to stay quiet so that God's important work wouldn't be in interrupted. Let me be very clear here. God's work is never more important than God's people. People made in God's image are his work, and God doesn't need me or any other leader to accomplish his work. Jesus accomplished all the work on the cross. We're joining him on his mission to share the good news of the kingdom. All of us are replaceable. Only Jesus is not I think because this organization, this church that helped hide this was a board of all men, just think about what a different reaction they would have had if there were some women on that board and this accusation had come up. I don't think they would have hit it. I think they would have had to address it, and it would have been messy, and it would have been painful, but it so would have been so much better than hiding it. Remember, we said in Christianity there are two broad theological positions on the role of women according to the Bible— complementarianism and egalitarianism even if complementarianism is biblical that says men and women can't hold the same positions they have different roles depending on their gender 
even if that is biblical, we'll talk more about the next week, but even if it is biblical, we must find a better way to keep women in positions of power so that women have a safe place to talk about abuse. So the sexist people walking into our churches don't feel like it is a safe place for them to prey on women so that we don't emphasize mission over people, so that we don't excuse abuse, so that we don't hide it or sweep it under the rug so we can go about our business as usual. When you have a high view of men and a low view of women, you will often defend male abusers instead of protecting female victims. When you have a high view of men and a low view of women, you will often cover up male abuses and shame female victims. That's not complementarianism. That's patriarchy dressing up sexism in religious language. By being funded by women, Jesus made the most powerful women in his organization the most powerful people in his organization, the most vulnerable people in his society. And he gave us a stunning example to follow as we build his church. Jesus protected women. Jesus empowered women. Jesus honored women publicly. Jesus released the voice of women. Jesus confided in women. Jesus was funded by women. Jesus celebrated women by name. Jesus respected women. And Jesus spoke of women as examples to follow. Now, it's our turn. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how brilliant, brilliantly you did the smallest things, like set up your ministry to have women have an important voice in what was done and said and how people behaved. Forgive us as the North American church for so often being about power and control and about money and not really caring about people made in your image or sometimes even excusing our bad behavior in the name of our mission. God, our mission is people, and if we ever forget that, we've forgotten you. And I pray that you will help Horizon be a church that honors and exalts and celebrates and supports women just like you did. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Yeah.